support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Birch Moon Midwifery, providing home and office-based midwifery care, including home birth, water birth, and breastfeeding support to Maine families since 2005. More information at birchmoonmidwifery.com. Just a few seconds before 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. We've got a main current special for you coming up, but some breaking news before we go to that. First, this is the first day that a lot of people are getting snow, and there are reports from all over the area of cars off the road, even road closures. So please be careful out there. Hopefully the roads are warming up now and that's not going to be as much of a problem as the day moves on. Also in national news, there are reports uh, that from several sources that explosive devices have been intercepted that were addressed to the Obamas and to the Clintons. Secret Services reporting that uh, they have been intercepted and uh, there's news in just about every national outlet about that this morning just breaking as we uh, come to air. Today's program is Maine Current Special. Uh, Garrett Martin of the Maine Center for Economic Policy spoke about the impact of Trump's economic policies on Maine at the University of Maine earlier this month. He was introduced by Professor Doug Allen. The Maine Center for Economic Policy has a vision of a prosperous, fair, and socially just economy in Maine. And Garrett Martin, who's the executive director, specializes in economic research policy and community economic development and philanthropic fund management. So um, today, Garrett Martin will present on the impact of Trump's economics on Maine. Garrett? Um, So as Doug said, I'm uh, Garrett Martin. I'm the executive director of Maine Center for Economic Policy. But maybe the starting point in terms of my introduction and how uh, I came to this work is helpful in terms of the remarks to follow. Um, I am a generation removed from poverty. Uh, My father grew up in rural North Carolina, and as a kid, I have very vivid memories of going to visit my grandmother, who had one room in her house in North Carolina that was heated. And she would put a carpet over the doorway of the room just to keep the draft out and all those kinds of things. And um, I have these very vivid memories from when I was sort of five and six of showing up at her house and rolling out of the car after the the trip uh, to her place and having her sort of sweep open this rug and bend down and give me a toothless tobacco-laden kiss. And, you know, her situation was such that when one of my uncles passed away uh, several years ago, he actually managed to leave some money for her. And my mom sort of painstakingly explained to her, Grandma Martin, you know, your son has passed away and he's left you some money. Uh, You can take your kids on a trip, Uh, your grandkids. You could uh, buy a car. You could uh, rent a different apartment. Basically, you can do something you've never done before. So what would you like to do? And her response was, I just want to go get some tea. And my father really uh, made it out of the holler, so to speak, in part because he grew up a mile down the road from an orphanage. And the orphanage was actually where he got most of his clothes and took a lot of his meals. 
Um, but more importantly, I think as a kid, he was lucky enough that he went to a, a school system where there were some public school teachers who really recognized his potential and helped him sort of navigate into the next stage of life, if you will. And so he wound up a country doc. He was an ophthalmologist in uh, southwestern Virginia. And really, of his eight siblings, only he and his youngest brother, who my parents effectively helped raise, uh, were the, really the, the two who had the greatest success and were able to get out of uh, that situation. Um, my cousins, actually, one of whom is a, is a military vet, uh, about five years ago now, came back from serving and uh, pretty recently lost his home due to a predatory loan. Um, and so those experiences are very much a part of my uh, upbringing. And, you know, fortunately, I am able to stand on the success of my father because, truthfully, that is not my experience. Um, you know, I have a very conventional track uh, because of my parents' ability to sort of move beyond that. Uh, I wound up going to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill for my undergrad. Uh, I was a Moorhead Scholar there, which for many of you, if you know that program, it's a full ride with a lot of great opportunities laid out for you. Uh, and then I subsequently went on to Princeton University where I got my master's degree in economics and policy analysis. Um, so I share that with you for two reasons. Uh, one, just to maybe give you a little bit more context around who's this uber wonky guy who's about to talk to you about some you know, arcane issue, which actually it's not arcane, it's very much top of mind and present in our experience right now, uh, but also because uh, my experience informs me to appreciate the role that well-funded public schools can play in helping connect people to opportunity, the importance of some of the public structures that were in place that certainly allowed my father to sort of move beyond uh, his situation, and uh, that, you know, when we do our work at the Maine Center for Economic Policy, first and foremost, we want to be informed by uh, rigorous analysis of the data. And so we are motivated and driven to dig deep in the numbers and really understand and appreciate what they're saying. But we also come to that information with a perspective, and that perspective is that there are policies that will result in better outcomes and can be informed by good information analysis, and that actually there are things that the public side of the equation can engage and do that will make a difference in people's lives in a positive way. Um, so, Maine Center for Economic Policy has been around now for 25 years. Uh, we really fill two niches in this state. Uh, one is providing credible research and analysis to the media, to policymakers, to other organizations that do work in the state, um, and, and to the public more broadly. Uh, the other part of what we do is our mission is very much about acknowledging that there are better outcomes to be achieved. And so we do engage as advocates in the legislature. Uh, we advocate for policies. We served on the steering committee for the uh, minimum wage initiative a couple of years ago. We were on the steering committee for the Medicaid expansion initiative a couple of years ago. Um, and again, our engagement with those issues was very much informed by our research and analysis. So for those of you who track the Medicaid expansion effort, uh, you may recognize some of the numbers that are associated with that. You know, how many people would benefit by expanding Medicaid? 70,000, 70, yeah. Uh, how many millions of dollars are we losing on an annual basis by not expanding Medicaid? 500 million. <laughs> Sounded like I don't remember. Uh, <laughs> um, so, you know, the economic impact in terms of jobs, 4,500 jobs, all those numbers actually came from our work. 
in our analysis. So in truth, our best work is work that doesn't have our name attached to it. It's work that just informs the debate and is part of the sort of um, popular understanding of those issues. Um, I did go light on slides, so I'm not using any projections, but I'm happy if anybody, anything that I sort of speak to, if you want to see um, the data that supports it or additional analysis in, in support of these points, I'm happy to direct you to those sources. Um, and that is one thing that's important in our work is that we try to be transparent and uh, source the research that we do. Um, so what I'd like to jump into is um, basically a consideration of Trump policies and their impacts on Maine. And I'm going to focus specifically on the tax cuts that were passed last year, which I suspect many of you all are somewhat familiar with, if not even more deeply familiar with, uh, and then the some of the federal budget proposals that have followed. And ultimately, I think what our conclusion is around these issues is that these policies, as currently crafted, really are playing a role both nationally and at the state level in increasing inequality, um, in jeopardizing the economic security for individuals and families, and ultimately hurting Maine's economy and capacity to support thriving communities. So I'm just being pretty upfront with our happy analysis of what these tax cuts in particular mean for Maine. And I think there's a caveat to this talk, which is that while I'm going to speak specifically to the Trump tax proposals, let's be clear that these proposals were not a brainchild of Trump himself, nor were they suddenly new to the political scene. Um, we've really seen now over 30 years' worth of these kinds of policies that effectively are based on a trickle-down economic view which would in the, suggest that the way to grow the economy is by cutting taxes in particular for those at the top of the income ladder, allowing those resources to flow through the economy in a way that creates greater activity, and at the same time reducing government's role in the economy. Um, does that sound like a familiar narrative to most of you? I think it does. Um, and I have to remember I'm at a university, so you all are much more steeped in this stuff than maybe sometimes uh, we get into. So. The, but before I dig into that, I do want to acknowledge, and I think one thing about our work that's so interesting is we're kind of the wonks in the room. You know, I have a, oh, here it is. I have my four-colored pen, which I come by. Um, you know, our work is really centered, by and large, on tax and budget policy, and that doesn't sound particularly sexy. Um, you know, I like to joke sometimes we, we're the ones who show up at a, uh, we bring a spreadsheet to a knife fight. Um, and every now and again we win. Um, so, you know, tax policy doesn't sound that scintillating, but the reality is is that taxes and budgets are really foundational documents for not only our vision for how the economy works, but also for how we ultimately will choose to invest in our economy and promote opportunity and support strong communities. Um, and so from that perspective... That is, uh, th that's sort of the understanding that we bring to the table when we look at these issues. The other thing, though, is that beyond the, the, the big picture of why fiscal policy matters, there's also the more micro-level perspective of why it matters to Maine. Um, and there are really three very clear reasons, and I'm sure there are a host of others, that one would consider for why we're even having this discussion. 
Um, the first is that one-third of state spending is money that comes from the federal government. So, you know, when you hear about at the state level when we're in these budget fights and what's happening in Augusta and so on and so forth, a lot of that conversation tends to focus on what's called the general fund. And the general fund represents the money that's raised from income tax and sales taxes levied across the state. But it turns out that we also, in spending money at the state level, draw in federal dollars that we use to pay for things like education and health care and infrastructure improvements. And those federal dollars account for a third of overall state spending on those kinds of investments. So that's quite significant. The second is that transfer payments, including Social Security and Medicare, account for 25% of personal income in Maine. Now, nationally, they account for about 17% of personal income. And there are a couple of reasons why Maine is sort of on the higher end of that spectrum. What's the most obvious from your perspective? Age. That's right. So the fact that we are an older state means that we are, it's not because we have a lot of poor people who are abusing the system. No. It is because we have an older cohort that is more likely to be receiving Social Security and Medicare payments. Um, and it's important to note that, that you know, disability payments are a big piece of that as well. So the flip side of that is it means that wages account for about 50% of income in Maine, whereas they account for about 55% of income nationally. And here's part of why these, this transfer payment conversation matters even more for Maine, which is that there are certain parts of the state where the demographics are even more skewed, right? So in Aroostook County, roughly 38% of income is derived from transfer payments that come from the federal level. Um, Washington County, I think it's around 37%. Um, so, you know, that goes up and down a little bit over the years, but the, the basic premise there is that these transfer payments play an important role in supporting the economic security of individuals and families, and that those dollars, this is the final reason why these things matter, ripple through the economy. So I'll give you another example, which is the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. There are some places in Maine where one out of every six grocery store purchases are supported by the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, which is federal dollars that flow into the state to provide resources to individuals and families to help them obtain food and address food insecurity. That's astonishing. Um, so one other reason why the sort of federal fiscal policy is particularly important to a state like Maine is that in part because of this transfer payment phenomenon, but also in part because we have BIW here, um, in part because at the state level we rely a lot on federal dollars to support construction and infrastructure projects, um, we are a net receiver of federal dollars, which means for every dollar we remit to the federal government in the form of income taxes from Maine residents, we actually get a bigger return in terms of what we get back on a per capita basis. So the figure sort of vacillates and it depends on what source you're looking at, but basically for every dollar that Mainers remit to the federal government in the form of income taxes, we get back 
somewhere between a dollar and thirty-five and a dollar and forty-five cents in return. Um, we rank, I think, somewhere around sort of eleventh uh, in terms of the per capita value of the money that we are getting from the federal government. So again, when you think about our economy, the flow of federal dollars is really to our favor. So anything that would serve to threaten that flow does have not only consequence for the individuals and communities that would be affected by the curtailment of those resources, but also it would have a ripple effect throughout our economy. Think about if we went down to Augusta today and we said to Governor LePage, we just heard news that BIW is going to refuse the contract to build the next destroyer. He would tell you you're crazy, right? Um, but we're doing that in other ways. So I'll get to that in a minute. Um, so when we talk about fiscal policy, the other thing I just want to touch on before digging into the lovely Trump tax plan is the dynamic that at the most basic level, what budgets are about and what tax policy is about is where does the money come from and where does it go, right? Pretty simple equation. Now, it turns out that where the money come from, where the money comes from really matters on a variety of levels because I could take money from just people on this half of the room and you guys get off scot-free. That wouldn't feel very good, would it? Um, or I could take money from everybody who's wearing red and everybody else gets off scot-free. So there are choices that we make about how we are pulling in those revenues. Um, similarly, there are choices that we make about how we allocate those revenues. And those choices, I would argue, are very consequential, again, in terms of the foundations of our economy. Um, but the Trump tax plan in brief, as I said earlier, is really sort of based on the premise that we grow the economy by cutting taxes. And it really had several key provisions. Um, the most prominent one from our perspective is its cuts to the corporate tax rate. So the corporate tax rate went from 35% to 21% in the Trump tax plan. Now, what is important to recognize and acknowledge there is that even though the corporate tax rate was 35% before, there's hardly any corporation in this country that was even paying close to that amount as their, as their percentage or share of taxes. And in fact, I would argue if they were, their accountants didn't last very long. Um, so the corporate tax cut is extremely um, big in this overall package. But in addition to that, there's a whole host of business tax cuts and deductions that get put through. And one of the most significant that relates to both business income and individual income is what's called the deductibility of pass-through income. So when you look at Maine's income tax proceeds, it turns out that most of us are familiar with the income tax based on what we earn through wages, right? That's pretty easy to figure out. But a lot of people are engaged in business enterprises that are structured in such a way that the money they pull from that business as their income tends to get treated differently. And the federal tax changes actually gives people a 20% deduction on the first part, on 20% on of their income from pass-through entities. 
okay? So it turns out that the primary beneficiaries of that kind of income don't tend to be low-income or mom-and-pop folks. They tend to be folks who are engaged in either they are partners in a law firm, for instance, or uh, in a medical practice, or uh, in any number of other sort of business arrangements where it makes sense to both shield yourself from a certain amount of liability and then have a vehicle by which you can claim sort of revenue from that business. You're listening to Maine Current Special on WERU-FM. This is Garrett Martin. He's the executive director of the Maine Center for Economic Policy, a nonpartisan research and policy organization. Uh, He was speaking at the University of Maine on October 11th. What I love about Maine from a business perspective is that everybody likes to wrap themselves in the sort of um, blanket of we're pro-small business, right? Um, And, you know, most small businesses are not making bank. In fact, if you look at the average earnings of most small business owners, they tend to be lower than prevailing wage rates. So, you know, that is a little bit of a myth that, oh, we're, we're cutting taxes for small business and that's going to grow the economy because we're supporting mom and pop on Main Street. Well, it turns out that mom and pop on Main Street don't benefit from these kinds of provisions. And, you know, that's one of the issues with how these, these types of tax policies get sold. Um, they're... Their build is something that's going to be good for a certain class of people who we all want to support, but it turns out that in that class of people, in this class of people here, not that you're a class, but right, I don't know, there are 35 of you here, well, that's generous, but, you know, and maybe two of you are going to benefit from that provision. Um, so, and, and I will say the other challenge with this, quite frankly, because we're, we're already touching into it maybe, is when we start to talk about that kind of business taxation, it gets confusing really fast, right? Because there are all kinds of ways that you account for what constitutes income from that kind of business, what you can write off and what you can't, and how those deductions get treated. And so, you know, you've got somebody who's, you know, showing that they've generated, I don't know, say a million dollars in sales, but they've written off this and that and the other and then they've also don't claim this part as income and so at the end of the day they're only paying taxes on a very small portion of it and there there are reasons why you know certain parts of that make sense right if you're uh, holding off on revenue that you get to purchase inventory for a future year well okay it probably makes sense not to tax that but you know at some point you're going to draw a salary from that endeavor. And, you know, there are lots of different ways to sort of write off different kinds of expenses that reduce the amount that you're ultimately drawing and paying taxes on. Um, So the doubling of the estate tax is another key provision of the Trump tax plan, where we went from an 11 million exemption for couples to a $22 million exemption. Now, there are very few households that actually ever are going to pay estate taxes on $22 million of estate. And if there are anybody in here who anticipates that, I would love to talk to you because MESEP is a nonprofit organization and we can help you with your estate planning. Um, But the reality is that change represents about a $4.5 million tax cut for those families that benefit, for those couples that would benefit. And there's no question, you know, when it, it, in Maine, we, we now have gone from a million-dollar exemption to, mirror, to mirroring the fe- federal provisions. Um, and I think when we first started looking at this issue, you know, there was something like maybe 
Um, well, the, the number of estates that were affected, even at a million dollar level, was you know a few hundred at most um, in any given year. And so you can see very quickly that this uh, cut alone is clearly skewed towards one group, one side of the income ladder. Um, and then the, the last two provisions that I just want to touch on is, in the end, there was a cut to the income tax rate. So the top rate went from 39.6% uh, to 37% for people with income over 600000 um, That gives a $36,000 cut, basically, to a couple with $2 million in income, for instance, that provision alone. Um, so this stuff starts to add up, right? Now, does it add up for any of you in this room? It's okay if you don't admit it, and it did. But I think you get the point here. Everything I've just talked about has very little consequence for sort of people who are kind of moderate income or your academics. Maybe you're low moderate. I don't know. Uh, um, but if you have tenure, you have job security, so that's important. Um, but the, the reality is that those provisions ultimately have very little consequence for most people. Um, and the provisions that do have consequence are either have limited value or actually are hurting those people. So one of those provisions is the elimination of the individual mandate in the Affordable Care Act. What that effectively is doing is it's further destabilizing the insurance markets and it's ultimately going to lead to increased insurance costs. And I will tell you, having looked at polling around this current election, the thing that is top of mind for Mainers is health insurance cost. That is the issue that is most prominent when you, when you ask people what they're concerned about. The second thing that comes up for most people is property taxes. Those are the two things that pop. So if you interact with a candidate, you should ask them, like, what are you hearing at doors when you, when you knock on doors? Most of them are hearing about health insurance and uh, property taxes. They're not hearing about income taxes. They're not hearing about you know, jobs. If they are hearing about jobs, it's about the fact that we don't have jobs that are paying a decent wage or that provide sort of stability. Um, and so that's a, that is the, the, uh, the Trump tax cut is going to make those issues even greater. Okay, so what are the broad effects of this? And then I'll get into specifically sort of the main perspective. You know, our perspective is that what the Trump tax bill did is it further rigs our tax system in the, to the favor of wealthy individuals and corporations. And that's undeniable when you look at who the winners and the losers are out of this deal, um, which basically is a recipe for growing inequality. Um, the other thing is it comes at a tremendous cost that will force future budget costs. $1.5 trillion. That was the initial estimate. It's actually going up as they start to try and implement it. And this is another important thing to mention when we go back to something like the pass-through provision or even the corporate tax changes. What this bill has done, or this law, is it has changed the incentives around how you book certain kinds of income. So it's created a whole new cottage industry of how you game the tax code. And it turns out that in the initial scoring of this bill, I don't think they expected or anticipated how people might start shifting certain types of income into other types of income for the purposes of tax avoidance. And so the final cost of this is going to be even more than the $1.5 trillion that they initially projected. And that's just over the 10-year period. Um, so 
so it comes at a tremendous cost. And in the near term, it does reduce revenues in a way that is counter to demographic trends. Right? So at the point at which, let me back up a second. The last time we sort of, well, not the last time, but one of the first sort of tax plans of this type came in the 1980s with Ronald Reagan, right? But let's think about what was different then that made it possible to sort of see our way through because there's an irony in these, these, these plans, which is that they're actually mortgaging the future and they're actually goosing the economy in a very Keynesian way. They've basically acknowledged that if the government can put money back in the system, it will help sort of support additional economic activity. But they're doing it by, le- by mortgaging the future. Now, in the case of Ronald Reagan, it was the baby boomers were in their mid-30s. So the Social Security concerns, Medicare concerns, that wasn't on anybody's radar screen. That wasn't a big deal. You know, we could get around those things. Now, baby boomers are in their 70s and late 60s. So that demographic phenomenon means we're actually going to need those revenues that we're giving up now to uphold our commitments to those folks in the future. So the timing of this also creates some real challenges. All right, so what does this mean for Maine? How does the Trump tax plan sort of ripple down at the, to the state level? Um, well, as I said before, it further rigs the tax code in favor of wealthy individuals and large corporations. And I've got a couple of numbers to throw out. So in 2019, and this is based on analysis from the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy. So we work with those folks um, interestingly, Maine Revenue Services, which is part of state government, has testified before that they reference ITEP models in their own modeling. Um, so there's a high level of credibility to the work that ITEP does. But um, their model, in 2019, the top 1% of Mainers, so those who average, whose average income is greater than one point, or, yeah, whose average income is greater than 1.2 million, the, the top 1% kicks in at about $560,000 of income. So um, get a total tax cut worth about $220 million. Now, that works out to be about an average tax cut of almost $32,000 per household. Um, And 98% of those households get a tax cut. All right? The bottom 20%, so we've gone from the top 1%, which represents about 7,000 households, in round numbers. Um, the bottom 20%, whose average income is around $14,000, get a total tax cut worth $9 million. So $220 million for about 7,000 households versus $9 million for about 140,000 households. Um, and that average works out to be about $70. Okay? Um, and 60%, so again, Remember, 98% of the top 1% get a tax cut. Only 60% of the bottom 20% actually get a tax cut. 15% will actually see their taxes go up. So not only is there an outsized tax cut going to the top, but in terms of the distribution within the top of winners and losers, it's even more pronounced. And what I love about these statistics 
is that sometimes when I sort of speak to the distribution of who wins and who loses in these tax changes, people will say, oh, of course the top 1% are going to get more because they make more money, right? That's logical. But in this case, if you are looking at it from that perspective, it still pans out in a way that sort of exacerbates inequality. So the top 1% account for about 16% of income in Maine, and they get 21% of the tax cut. Okay? The bottom 20% account for about 3.5% three of income, and they only account for about 1% of the tax cut. So even if you said, oh, well, a great, you know, a fair tax plan is one where everybody gets a proportional share of the cut relative to their income. This doesn't even stack up in that regard. And most people, like people who love to talk about flat tax, will acknowledge that that's what they're striving for. Like their view of a fair tax system is everybody pays a proportional share of their income in taxes, right? Now, the problem when you start talking about the flat taxes, the conversation for another day, is that that is oftentimes discussed in reference to the income tax, and it ignores the fact that people are also paying sales taxes and property taxes. So when you start to consider what the real distributional impacts of that kind of policy are, it's, it, it sort of goes haywire. Um, Sean Moody's on record saying he supports a, I don't know, is a 5% or 5.5% flat tax. That's going to cost the state about $550 million. It's not a recipe for growing our economy. Um, so those are the sort of realities of just in terms of who pays or who doesn't pay, how they've sort of reshuffled the deck chairs. But then the other part of this is this was sold on the promise of it's going to grow wages, right? Corporations are going to take their corporate tax cuts, and they're going to use those to, to boost wages for workers. So let's consider how that's panned out. Well, it turns out that stock buybacks are the biggest priority. And the winners of stock buybacks are CEOs and stockholders, right? Not workers, unless they work in an ESOP, an employee stock-owned um, entity. Um, and based on analysis from uh, Americans for Tax Fairness, they pulled publicly available records and newspaper articles on companies that announced that they were going to boost wages among their workers and sort of um, other actions on the part of those companies. So one thing they found was that one main company got $35 million in tax cuts. Unfortunately, I can't tell you who that is because I don't actually know. Um, but the other thing, going back to the sort of wages piece, 917 out of 680,000 main workers were promised one-time bonuses or wage hikes as a, as a result of these tax cuts. So 917 workers did get some benefit, though I'm sure it pales in comparison to the benefits that accrued to a whole host of other people who were not frontline workers. Um, so that's on the inequality front. I didn't say I was going to give you a happy talk. But then let's talk a little bit about this sort of idea that the tax cuts jeopardize the economic security. So one of the things we're already seeing is how Congress is ultimately paying for these tax cuts. Because if you reduce your resources available, well, you then have to reduce spending. Now, at the federal level, they do have a little bit of an out because they can print money, and that's a whole other conversation too. But at least in terms of what they have been talking about, there are a couple of clear examples of where uh, re reduced revenues is resulting in either proposed or actual cuts to programs that affect 
economic security for individuals and families. So one proposed cut was to the Low Income Heating Energy Assistance Program, uh, which would affect about 38,000 Mainers. And I can tell you that the proposed, well, the actual cut to the estate tax was more than enough to pay for that program. So we've given up fuel assistance for low-income families who are struggling to make ends meet in exchange for huge windfalls to households that certainly must own multiple properties and may or may not choose to heat them throughout the year, but you know, have the discretion to make that decision for themselves. Um, the other program that, that we couldn't believe when we saw this, but we knew it was on the chopping block, um, were the proposed cuts to the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program that I referenced earlier. There are 200,000 Mainers or 100,000 households that benefit from this program. And so when you think about how those cuts ripple through the economy, our projection is that the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program alone uh, brings about $270 million into Maine's economy. And that those dollars rippling through, so when those individuals go to the grocery store, they make those purchases, the grocery store owners pay their employees, and then those employees in, you know, engage in other commerce. Um, those, those, those purchases generate a, a, about $400 million in economic impact and support about 4,700 jobs. And again, most of that impact are in the more impoverished areas of the state, which, for better or worse, tend to be the rural places. You know, when we looked at the recovery from the Great Recession, it turns out that rural Maine had a longer period of economic decline than it did in the, in the, after the Great Depression. So rural Maine just, is just now coming out of its own Great Depression. Um, there was a period, and Maine was very slow to come out of the recession, there was a period of time where four out of every five jobs that were being created after the recession were being created in the Portland metropolitan area. So I'm sorry that you're here, because the reality is all the, most of the economic dynamism is in southern Maine right now. Um, happily, that's beginning to pick up elsewhere in the state. But at least in terms of where the job growth was occurring, um, that was a phenomenon from the post-recession. This is Maine Currents on WERU-FM. This is actually Maine Current Special. You're listening to Garrett Martin, the Executive Director of the Maine Center for Economic Policy, speaking about the impact of Trump's economic policies on Maine at University of Maine on October 11th. So you can see how that sort of, not only by jeopardizing economic security are you hurting individuals and families, but you're also hurting the economy more broadly. Um, you know, we know, for instance, that with the Medicaid expansion debate, that again, bringing those resources into the state supports somewhere between 4,500 and 5,000 jobs. Uh, for those monies to go away, that would have huge consequence um, throughout the state. And so, what I want to acknowledge, though, is the other problem with the Trump tax plan is that it comes on top of similar plans enacted at the state level. So, you know, when I go around nationally, a lot of people will say to me, boy, you guys have been dealing with your own version of Donald Trump for about seven years now. And I think, sadly, the reality is there's some truth to that. 
And there's particular truth when you start to look at some of the policies that are being proposed and enacted. And so in Maine, uh, we have actually put into place tax cuts since the beginning of the LePage administration that have had the effect of reducing state revenues by about $800 million a year. And when you look at sort of unfunded commitments that the state has made in the past to education, so everybody knows about 55% funding for education. I know there's a debate over what now constitutes 55%, but don't be deceived. Um, you know, when you look at that, when you look at the fact that the state has cut back on funding for towns to support municipal services and fire and safety, um, and a whole host of other things, um, what we know is going into next year's budget fight, and this is going to be a challenge for any governor, <coughs> because of the tax cuts that largely went to the top of the income ladder at the state level, that there's, there's about a $640 million hole in the budget that has been created by those tax cuts. But had we not enacted those tax cuts, we'd actually have $200 million more in revenue. We would have more revenue than we need to actually fully fund education, do Medicaid expansion, and uh, fully commit to revenue sharing. And the thing that's really challenging for people to wrap their heads around, and this is the, the, the real premise of this talk for me, which is the more you push the cost of services down to the local level or down to its smallest unit, the more likely you are to foster inequality in terms of opportunity and resource availability. So we've seen it at the state level where the state has cut income taxes and what did they do as a response to make up for it? Well, one of their responses was raising the sales tax, which again, affects low and moderate income people more. And then the other response is to, to push cost off to local communities. And so those local communities are having to either cut those services or make up for them in the form of higher property taxes. So when voters start to talk about the fact that property taxes is what they're concerned about, that's a big reason for why that's the case. Um, okay. So I've given you the kind of What's in the Trump tax plan? What are the issues as it relates to Maine and our economy? How that sort of is eerily familiar and similar to some things that we've seen at the state level. <coughs> but I don't want to give you just complete gloom and doom. And so I do think that there are some signs of hope as we think about this issue. But before I get there, I just want to reinforce what we've talked about, which is tax policy matters when it comes to addressing issues of inequality. Um, and it, they also matter when it comes to making sure that we have a strong economy and the resources to invest. But what we know is that also a rising tide doesn't necessarily lift all boats. And so <coughs> related to this issue is one thing we're seeing now in terms of how they're trying to pay for tax cuts at both the state and federal level. Is there creating new barriers for people to get access to programs that are supposed to help them stay on their feet. And in Maine, what's troubling for us in this regard is this issue of quote-unquote work requirements. Well, it turns out that Maine has a disproportionately large share of workers who have to work multiple jobs or who are working part-time jobs but want full-time work. Um, and what you're doing by requiring them to meet work requirements is you're actually undermining their ability 
to retain work. Because if you lose your health insurance because you're not working, but you're not working because either you're unhealthy or you've only been able to secure part-time work, you've potentially undermined your ability to stay attached to the workforce. And we see huge numbers of Mainers who are not in the workforce who should be, but for either health issues or other issues that are sort of preventing them from being there. Okay, signs of hope. Um, <clears throat> there are three signs of hope that I would throw out there. The first is the story of Kansas. So how many of you are familiar with the story of Kansas? And by that, I don't mean about this little girl who lands out of the sky and clicks her toes. This is recently, it's, uh, I don't have my dates exact, but it's been in the last five years, I believe. Um, Sen um, Governor Brown back in Kansas with the legislature passed enormous tax cuts. And I will say this is one of our challenges in working with tax policy is that in many instances, the results, the impacts of these choices don't get felt until further down the line. And people sort of lose the connection between the two. So in Kansas, what happened is that they cut the budget, they reduced resources available for education in particular, and there were actually schools that went to four-day-a-week sessions almost immediately. And so people felt that. They saw the impact. They connected the dots. And subsequently, what they did was they voted people into office who were willing to roll some of those tax cuts back. We see that in relation to the Trump tax plan in Maine, which is that there are, there are more Mainers than you think who are skeptical of the benefits of that plan. And particularly, the longer sort of we get away from it and the more that people realize, like, my wages are not changing that much. And... I'm not seeing any significant improvement in my own economic situation, <clears throat> but I was promised this bill of goods that I don't seem to be seeing. Um, and in fact, one economist pointed out that uh, changes in fuel prices alone have been sufficient to sort of wipe out the gains, any gains that have, have been received by anybody uh, below a certain income level as a result of the Trump tax cut. And by the way, I haven't even gotten into the part where a lot of the provisions that benefit low and moderate income people are slated to go away. Um, in 2017. So that's a conversation for another day. Um, so one sign of hope, though, is the story of Kansas, where people are perceiving and beginning to understand what the impacts and implications of this sort of trickle-down approach could be. Um, and that relates to this sort of growing public awareness and efforts to rebalance the tax code in favor of working-class families. Um, so in Maine, there's a dirty little secret, which is while these tax cuts have been enacted since 2010, there was at least some awareness that they couldn't just be all directed at wealthy people. And so, believe it or not, we actually have a less regressive tax system now than we did when Governor LePage came into office. And the reason for that is because when the sales taxes went up, we were able to put in place a refundable tax credit that meant that households at a certain income level would get money back from filing their taxes just because they're low income. Similarly, we expanded a property tax credit and we made our earned income tax credit refundable. So all those things mean that whereas before, if you had no tax liability, you didn't get any benefit. Now, if you have no tax liability but you're still eligible for those programs, you actually do get a benefit. 
And so the net effect of that has been some families have seen the, the bottom line impact for families is that it now means that some families are getting as much as thirteen to fourteen hundred dollars back when they file their income taxes. And we've seen it now in the data where tax changes in state level tax policy alone have been responsible for actually lifting uh, about uh, 2,500 families out of poverty. So from our perspective, that's a good thing. But <clears throat> the point there is that there is this growing awareness that efforts to rebalance the tax code can go both ways. You know, we've kind of accepted that the tax code is rigged in favor of a certain class of people. Well, why don't we unrig it and put it in favor of other people? And then the last sign of hope I'll leave you with is as a result of both growing awareness about inequality and a response to the realities of our economy, you know, in Maine, from 2001 to now, we've lost somewhere around 40,000 middle-wage jobs. And those jobs have increasingly been replaced by low-wage jobs. So one of the things I love in sort of the current conversation that's happening at the state level is this discussion that we just need to train workers better. That's a nice idea, and it actually does, can result in increased income for those workers who benefit from that training. But the reality is, if we're losing middle-wage jobs and they're being replaced by low-wage jobs, and we're training workers better for jobs that ultimately don't exist, what's the value add for those workers? And so I think that increasingly citizens are realizing that the economy is not like the weather, that there are things that we can do to affect the direction of who wins and who loses and how the rules of the game operate. And I've, I think I've shared before that, you know, when I was a kid, I would play Monopoly with my older brothers, and I would always lose. And it's not because I was a progressive economist who decided that, you know, I didn't want to take that rent. But then I had this experience where I went over to a friend's house and I started playing Monopoly with him. And he did something, and I said, you can't do that. He says, what do you mean I can't do that? I said, that's not how the rules work. He says, who have you been playing with? <laughs> and I think that's the point. Like, people are starting to wake up and realize we've sort of accepted the rules have been structured in a certain way, but the more people sort of take agency and understand that they can engage, the more they have the ability to influence the outcomes. And to that, I will leave you with the minimum wage referendum. Um, you know, what's so interesting, we recently put out an, an issue brief on this because there's new census data that came out and new labor data that came out that shows that Maine saw a reduction in child poverty of 10,000 people, which is the largest reduction in child poverty we've seen in years. It was a, it went, we went from 17% child poverty to 13% child poverty. It also turns out that household income has increased by 10% for the bottom 25% of Maine households in, in the year in which the minimum wage initiative came into effect, 2017. At the same time, in New England, for that same income group, household income was flat. <clears throat> so inflation adjusted, they saw no income gain. And nationally, that same 25% group actually lost household income. So they, they saw a reduction in household income about 1.8%. So we bucked the trend. And it's hard to look at that data and say something's going on here that's different in Maine than in, than in a lot of other states. 
And part of what's different is that minimum wage referendum. And when we modeled how the minimum wage referendum was going to affect families and reduce poverty, it turns out that the modeling we did is very similar to what the data is now showing. Well, what's interesting about that is the Department of Labor came out with a sort of a piece that said that we needed to retract our analysis because we used the wrong data and that the data that needed to be used doesn't actually exist. Who was it from the Department of Labor? Well, it was John Butera, who was the, who's the commissioner. Um, but, you know, according to economists at the Center for Workforce Research and Innovation. But my point there is not about a spat between MESEP and, you know, other economists, because I think there are some very interesting economic conversations to be had in the state about what's the impact of our demographics on our future um, economy, um, you know, how much does the minimum wage have an effect on people's household income, but does it have an effect? I think it does. Um, but the point is, is the attack was not to say, oh no, this policy is reducing wages and actually cutting jobs for poor people. It was just that the analysis that these guys did to say that it's actually helping to reduce child poverty is flawed. Um, and I would stand by that analysis because we looked, we've looked at a range of data along those lines. So, the, but the bigger point is that citizen action and citizen awareness matters and is making a difference. And we're seeing that in terms of how people are voting both on ballot initiatives and potentially how people vote um, when it comes time to engage these issues in the future. So I'm going to stop there. Uh, and thank you. <laughs> so I'm, yeah, questions, please. You know, we're hearing about some of the work that MESIP does that's the real analysis work. And, you know, obviously that's your bread and butter that's really important work. Right. But when you take that kind of information and you put it into public discourse, mm -hmm. what, what happens with it? And is it more difficult now, now that people live in this world of, you know, alternative facts or fake news? You know, they don't believe really what's going on necessarily, and they may be alternative data that, in my view, isn't as well done or right. carefully done. So what, what, what are the challenges that you face, and how, how has the, you know, how, what, what, you know, how does that relate to state debates? What can counter that? Yeah. So um, I, I think what's interesting about doing this kind of work in Maine is that we have tremendous opportunities and we have tremendous challenges. And, you know, admittedly, in the landscape where, I mean, I was just talking to a reporter from Bloomberg News yesterday, and <clears throat> he, he basically said, it seems like, given our tribalism, that you're either with one side or the other, and there's no in-between, because I was saying, you know, we're just trying to lift up good analysis that then informs good decisions. So in Maine, what's so interesting about this, Amy, is that we have a legislature that is comprised of citizen lawmakers who are term limited. So they have very little information and understanding of the issues they work on, by and large. And the point at which they start to really understand what they're doing, they're gone. Um, the other part of that equation is we have a legislature that is very thinly staffed. And to the degree that they are staffed, it tends to be people who are more engaged on the political side of the operation, not on the policy development side of the operation. Um, 
And then you lay on top of that, we have an administration that has basically dismantled what previously were the apparatuses within state government that would allow for longer-term thinking and policy development. So the state planning office is gone. The Office of Policy and Management has been significantly curtailed and now is being eliminated. Um, and ironically, that creates a tremendous vacuum. Um, and it's a tremendous, it's an information vacuum into which we have successfully been able to insert ourselves at times. Now, you know, you have to do that strategically. And so part of the reason, for instance, why we have a less regressive tax system than we did before was because we were able to model the impacts of different tax changes and sort of come in behind the scenes and offer up a host of alternatives that ultimately made their way into the final proposal. Um, and, you know, there was no one who was able to do that for the folks that, you know, were, had other interest in that debate. Um, but I will say you are right that one of our greatest challenges is to have the kinds of relationships and connections that allow us to have entree and conversations across the aisle. And I'll give you two particular examples. Um, a couple of years ago, I was invited in to meet with a group of lawmakers, five Republicans, five Democrats, around tax reform. And I walked into the room, <coughs> and the lawmaker who invited me introduced me. And I sat down, and uh, this other lawmaker, a Republican uh, senator from southern Maine, said, oh, I know who he is, and I don't agree with anything he has to say. <laughs> I thought this could be the start of a great relationship. <laughs> Um, and, you know, as the conversation unfolded, though, as they were started, suddenly all the questions are coming at me from both, you know, from everybody about, you know, well, if we did this to the sales tax, what would that mean? If we did this, if we did that, if we did this. And this lawmaker came up to me afterwards and she says, you know, it turns out you and I might agree on a lot more than I thought we did. And I said, well, with all due respect, Senator, like, you tend to see me in front of your committee um, advocating on issues where we may disagree. But, you know, the reality is our job, more than anything, is to provide you all with good information to allow you to make better decisions. And that's the spirit in which I was here today, and that's the spirit in which we offer our testimony. Whether or not you agree with us doesn't matter, as long as you can appreciate that we have good information that we're bringing to the debate. Um, so, but, you know, the sad thing is that takes a lot of work to, to get people in that space. And so we have done some things intentionally to help foster those receptivity to our information, but I'm not going to lie to you. You know this as well as anybody. You know, the minute an issue that you work on enters the political space, you will be divided and put in one box or another. And so we have to just try to understand that and find ways to, in, you know, that's why with the Medicaid expansion debate, we were, again, when I said our best work is work that doesn't, where our name doesn't even show up, I really believe that. You know, when, when Democrats, Republicans, independents alike, are talking about our data as though this is the reality, you know, and it's not, oh, the main Center for Economic Policy says. That's a good place for us to be. That was Garrett Martin, the executive director of the Maine Center for Economic Policy, speaking at the University of Maine on October 11th. MESEP is a nonpartisan research and policy organization, and more information about them can be found at mecep.org. Again, the breaking news this morning is that explosive devices have been intercepted that were addressed to the Clintons' residence, to the Obamas, 
residents to the White House. We are now learning that are uh, said to be similar to the explosive device earlier this week that was directed to uh, Soros's home. And also CNN headquarters are currently being evacuated because of a suspicious package there. This has been a main current special. If you missed any part of the program or would like to share it with others, you can find the archives of this and all of our locally produced public affairs programs at weru.org. Be sure to catch us at our regular time on the first Thursday of each month for independent local news, views, and culture. I'm Amy Brown. Stay tuned for On the Wing with Melisenda. Come see us tonight at the Alamo in Bucksport starting at 6 o'clock for live storytelling event, Ghost Stories. That's at the Alamo Theater. Suggested donation is $10 at the door with half of the proceeds going to WERU. Thanks for listening to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Support for WERU comes from our listeners 